Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hey, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond again at the Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Today, we've got a real special guest, Dr. Robert Pearl, MD, who happens to be at this point in his life, and it's quite a life, clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford. He's also on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and the reason is for 18 years, he was also CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, as in Kaiser Permanente. He's also best-selling author of the book, Mistreated, How We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, the host of two podcasts, Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truths, and author now of the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Check it out for yourself. You can buy it on Amazon, I'm assuming. Welcome, Dr. Pearl. Thank you very much, Dyke. And for your listeners, the book is available on Amazon and most platforms. All profits go for Doctors Without Borders. And anyone who pre-orders can get a signed book plate, a discussion guide, a reading list, and a chance to see the first introductory chapter before anyone else. And the book will be delivered to their house on the publishing date of March of May the 18th. Oh, my golly. But wait, there's more. There's got to be more. Okay, cool. Well, that's great. So all the profits go to Doctors Without Borders. Yes, as it did on the first book as well. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. Well, one of the things that Dr. Pearl and I have been talking about since what we talk about is the practice of the practice of medicine, how you build a fulfilling life around your choice a long time ago to become a light worker, become a helper, a healer, and a doctor. And if you notice the arc of Dr. Pearl's life, he's a practicing plastic surgeon, right? And somehow there was a fork in that road back there in the day that ended up with him being 18 years with the CEO of one of the largest medical groups in the United States of America, OMG, OMG. So one of the things that I also noticed for me personally and for the folks that work with me at the Happy MD is that oftentimes those forks where you change the course of your career Oftentimes, those forks are marked by something stressful. Oftentimes, it's burnout. Where you say to yourself, I'm not sure how much longer I can keep going like this. Where you say to yourself, perhaps, you know, I'm really not making the difference I hoped to make back in the day when I chose to be a doctor. So, Dr. Pearl, what I'd love to do first, just to kick us off, because you and I both know there's a thousand things we can talk about. Take us back in the murky past to the place where you said, ah, I want to do some leadership work. Was it just that you didn't say no fast enough? Was it a conscious choice? Tell us the story. Dyke, if I had decided I wanted to be CEO, I don't think I could have figured out how to become CEO. Okay. And the word that I use when I think about the arc of my career is serendipity. It actually starts in college. I went to college to become a university professor. And in my first year, my hero who ultimately became the chairman at Reed, didn't get tenure. 
And I decided I wanted to be in something that didn't have politics. Oh, okay. And that would be medicine. I mean, here I am, a 17-year-old naive individual. And I figured that uh, I went to Yale and then I went to Stanford to train in heart surgery, figuring that either you live or die. I never worried if I wasn't any good and people noticed it. What bothered me was this notion of the politics. And I thought that heart surgery would be a place to be no politics. And of course, what did I find? The best surgeons weren't getting the most cases. It was the people who belonged to the right clubs, the right groups who entertained the most. I became disillusioned. And I was lucky. A professor there in plastic surgery sent me to Mexico as part of my rotation to uh, work on kids with cleft lip and cleft palate. And that's what I do and fell in love with cleft lip and cleft palate, congenital problems, and had tremendous satisfaction. And when I was in my last year of residency, I was going to go to South America and fix kids with cleft lip and cleft palate for a year. And then a individual at Kaiser Permanente, was a self-pilot and crashed his plane. And they called me and said, would you come for six months? Six months, sure, I'll do anything for six months. What difference does it make? I didn't have any specific plans again. I'd never heard of Kaiser Permanente. And I said, okay, I'll come and help out and give you a hand. And I loved it. This was a physician-run medical group. Ultimately, by the time I was done, it was I was leading 10,000 physicians on the West Coast, a couple thousand on the East Coast, taking care of over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members. But at the time, I just went there to do a job and I enjoyed it very much. And a little bit along the lines that you said, like uh, in my second year, I got a phone call from the head of the medical staff. He said, how would you like to be chairman of the operating room committee? Well, in my mind, this was recognition that he saw how brilliant I was and how talented I was. No, everyone else had just turned the job down. I was the last person standing, the only one foolish enough to take on this job. It was in the midst of the nursing crisis. Absolutely classic path to leadership. <laughs> <laughs> but I found I loved it. It was, it was a creative process. Uh, I was able to put in place a training program for the uh, nurses in the ICU wanted to go to the operating room, uh, find ways to recruit additional people, to bring in uh, fly, what we call flying nurses right now. At the time, uh, they didn't exist, but we figured out a way to accomplish that. And of course, once you recognize that being able to solve a problem, people look towards you. And they asked me, would I be willing to become what's called the assistant physician chief, the number two job? I've only been there for two years. And it's interesting because it, it was the opposite of burnout, actually. I was most afraid I'd have to give up my clinical work and I had to negotiate to not have to diminish that. I said, I'll get the job done. I'm a, I can work 12, 14 hours a day, but I need to make sure that I can continue to practice the craft that I've spent a decade uh, being able to hone. And then you slowly work yourself up. I spent time at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I had the chance to become the physician in chief at Kaiser Santa Clara, which is uh, the largest of all the facilities, now caring for almost half a million people at that one site alone. And then Kaiser Permanente got into big trouble. It got down to two days of cash. We had to borrow a day of cash to stay in business to meet state regulatory requirements. Oh, my. People don't necessarily know this. And the CEO got fired and the job became available. Now, inside the Permanente Medical Group, 
The process of selecting the CEO is done by the board, but it has to be ratified by all of the physicians. And so there is a actual more public way than a typical company doing the CEO role. And it wasn't the job I wanted because I knew I'd have to really diminish my clinical work at that particular point. Uh, the Oakland offices were 50 miles from my home. I thought I'd be stuck in some uh, executive suite somewhere, never again seeing patients, talking to doctors, doing, doing the things that I loved to do. And I didn't really want it. I asked a couple of people, would you say run for the position? It's not quite that political as I'm describing, but would you consider your, they said, no way, you're out of your mind. I don't want to do this job. And I looked at the people who are willing to do it and I said, no. I don't think that I want to work in this organization if they become the leaders. I don't have the respect for the reasons that moving forward, as you talk about the mission and the purpose. And so I said that I'd be willing to be considered. And they decided to select me. And that was in 1998. I began in 1999 and uh, served for 18 years. Well, and the thing that I'm going to just notice is that a lot of times people have the same route to leadership. They don't say no quickly enough. They're the last resort. I remember when I became the chairperson of the executive committee of our little 40 doctor multi-specialty group, I had just moved to town and I sat on the executive committee as a regular member, was there for six months. And they said, hey, Dyke, you're chairman next year. Everybody else has done it. Nobody likes it. <laughs> and in that first year, our CEO came to me and said we couldn't make payroll. And I said, I thought that was your job. <laughs> I'm just a doctor sitting here, right? And I think it's the opposite of what it should be. You know, we should be able to understand that leadership is the means of being able to provide better care. I mean, you, you asked me about my three careers. You know, as a reconstructive surgeon, I probably touched the lives of, I don't know, 10,000 patients across the uh, time that I was practicing full time, which was until I became the, the CEO. Uh, then as CEO, I'm touching the lives of maybe 10 million people across Kaiser Permanente at the time. And the opportunity in the new path that I'm following as an author, as a teacher, as a speaker, I'm hoping to touch 300 million people to change the system of healthcare. Because if we don't do it, Dyke, it's going to be done to us. And I'm particularly worried in the post-coronavirus era, what's going to happen as the economic challenges that are developing now will come to roost and we're going to find ourselves having to lower the cost of care. We've said for a long time, it should, it must, now it will, because you can't afford to pay for it, whether you're the federal government with eight to $10 trillion we borrowed, we've got to pay back with interest, the states that have to have balanced budgets or small businesses that are facing bankruptcy, healthcare costs will come down. And there's only two ways it can happen. It can't happen in a fee-for-service world where utilization can keep going up. It's either going to happen by rationing, telling people you're too old to have hip surgery or heart surgery, telling them that this drug is too expensive to give to you, or telling them to get at the end of the line and your time will come in six or 12 months to have your routine procedure being done. Things that will tear doctors apart because of the culture of medicine, because of our oath to first do no harm, or we're going to transform it. And the only people who can lead that process to me, Dyke, are physicians. Well, and I would say, again, if you find yourself in a leadership position, 
it's important to have that as a piece of your ideal job description. Because a lot of people will have a pure clinician job description, like I want to see patients, that's just what I want to do, and that's awesome. But for people who say, I want to be a clinician and a leader, it's important that you want to do that. And I'm just going to personally, right now, I'm just going to, nah, 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 Chris, and you the luckiest man in the world. Because as you tumbled into leadership, you found that you enjoyed it. It was something that you love to do that you may not have been aware that you would love so much when you got on the ramp. Wow, this is really fun. I think I'll keep doing this ride. You sure do you want you sure you don't want to throw your hat in the ring? Oh, what the heck? Hey, CEO, what, 18 years now? It turns out that it's been a thrill ride for you. For a lot of people, what I see is they take on a leadership role because they don't say no fast enough and it ends up burning them out because it's a whole different skill set, a whole different body of work and knowledge and relationships that you have to work with. So ideally, what we would do is begin to teach leadership early on to physicians because it's different. By the way, you don't need an MBA. You also don't need to know how to read a profit and loss statement. That's your CFO's job. <laughs> if they can't explain it to you, you need another CFO, not an MBA. And I think that you're right that the culture of medicine is very important. The challenge right now is that I believe there's a pendulum that swung, and you do too. The pendulum has swung way over to the side of administration and money and profit and cost. And we find ourselves in the highest cost healthcare delivery system in the world by a mile. I think it's still a factor of four. And uh, there is no easy path to a future with lower cost and healthier workplaces. But coronavirus will probably accelerate that. I agree. So in the book, Uncaring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. What I emphasize is that there are the systemic issues. And that was the focus of the book, Mistreated. I mean, the fact that the insurance system is completely broken, the computers are too slow, the bureaucratic tasks to make no sense. I can go to the list of things doctors have said is the cause of their burnout and the cause of the failures in medicine. But in the book, I dig deeper to look at what are the things that we control that contribute to that. I'll give you a really good example. Let's look at the issue of the mortality in COVID-19 for Black patients, three times higher. I'm going to guess that the people watching and listening to this program who are physicians will tell you that it's because Black individuals often are in jobs where they couldn't stay home and work on Zoom, that they had to take public transportation, subways and buses, They'll talk about more congested living circumstances. And then you start to look at some data. And you see that early in the pandemic, what you see is that Black patients and white patients who came to the ED with the same symptoms, we tested white patients more often when there was a shortage of supplies. You look at the data, women after mastectomy who are black have less opportunity to be offered reconstructive surgery. The maternal mortality three times higher exists except when the attending physician's a black physician. All that data is there, we don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. You look at the things that we did during the coronavirus to provide access to patients with telemedicine, far more convened, high quality, before that, we had the technology in Kaiser Permanente. We were doing over a million telehealth visits when I was CEO annually. 
but it's not happening across the United States more than 1% of the time. Why is that? Because in the culture of medicine, we as physicians elevate our own status. But the problem happens, I believe, Dyke, that we know things that we do and we control as doctors are problematic. And I think we've not seen that. Take primary care. Why do we think of primary care physicians as low down in the hierarchy? Okay, salary. Well, that is true that primary care physicians should earn more money. They do a tremendous job. They add two and a half times more value than specialists at life longevity. But pediatricians who earn less are far less burned out and more satisfied. How do we explain that the specialty with the highest level of burnout is urology, a specialty that earns almost half a million dollars a year? And the answer is because it is this crazy hierarchy that we have where we elevate interventionalists over individuals who do prevention, and we elevate the ones who do the most sexy procedures. And that was the robotic prostatectomy. And what changed? PSA recommendations and patients wanting to watch and wait, and you're watching the dissatisfaction happen across that specialty. There are so many things that are happening inside medicine under our control. And that's why, like you, I encourage physicians to provide leadership. When I was the CEO, 10,000 physicians, 2,500 of them went through extensive leadership training. They didn't necessarily have big titles. They might have been the head of quality in their department or service in their department. They might have had a function specific to patients. I believe that every physician needs to be a leader. And a piece that I wrote for the uh, New England Journal of Medicine a decade ago, I believe that every fourth year medical student should spend a month in business school because I agree with you, you don't need an MBA. But there are skills, skills that you teach in the various programs that you run, about how you create a functioning group, about how you set a strategy, about how you come up with an operational plan, about how you motivate people. I think these are the skills that we do need, and they are teachable, and it doesn't take a two-year commitment. You can learn it in a much shorter amount of time, but they are skills that are very useful if you're going to try to have a positive impact. Well, and the challenge right now, and we're going to talk about the USA because we can talk about international all day long as well. But in the United States of America, what's happened is for the majority of physicians, they're in employee roles and the structure and systems of care that they plug their skills into is designed by somebody typically who's not a physician. That's one of the big challenges is if you can get a physician into the senior leadership team, oftentimes they're marginalized to the business, to the the folks that are operations and finance and CFO and things like that. So one of the things I like to do, and let's talk about this for a little bit, if you can. So I'm a doctor. I'm seeing patients today inside Mega Health Corp. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't get to pick and train and onboard my MA. I don't even get an MA because they've decided you don't deserve one. There's 10 of us in the office and they only give us five MAs, right? They have an EMR we all hate. I could go on and on and on, but you've heard this story a lot. What agency, what choices, what ability to modulate the culture in that organization 
would provide better care to the patient, would provide a better work environment for the doctor. I'm interested where you would start with an individual doctor. I'm not a CEO, right? Just trying to make it to the end of the day. What would you say? Well, the first thing I would say is don't lump every opportunity besides having your own office in the community to be in, in quotes, employed. In the Permanently Medical Group, we were a physician-led, physician-governed, physician-board organization, an equal partner with the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and hospitals. And so we were able to come together and have an agency that exists. And there are other medical groups. I was the chair of the Accountable Care Physician Organization nationally. There were 24 medical groups with exactly the same structure. So in deciding that you're going to take a job in quotes, working for a hospital, that's the deal that you're making. I don't think it's the best deal. Uh, It may be a better deal and a safer deal because as a physician in fee-for-service community practice alone, the insurance companies are too strong, but that's the deal you got yourself in. Okay. So let's, let's stop for just a second. Okay. So, and this is always true. And let me just tell a story from my perspective of the people who hire me as a coach to help them with burnout, 30% of them have to change jobs to get better. 70% don't. All of them would thought they'd have to take a new job, but it doesn't turn out that way. Once you know what it is you're looking for, your ideal job description, you can start heading in that direction and recover inside you 70% of the time. But the 30% of the time that people must change jobs, there's one of two things, a conflict with their boss because people don't quit the company. They quit their boss, right? Or two, a conflict with the culture of the organization. They don't have the ability to negotiate for changes to protect the integrity of their practice. So your job choice is really important. And one of the things you need to do is look at the way your company makes money. You were just describing the business model of the organization, the way the organization is governed, the culture of the organization, how they make decisions. Because if you are incompatible at that level with the way the organization works, it will eventually either make you miserable or spit you out. I agree. So that decision is very, very important. The second thing I would add, though, is understanding to the point you just made, the motivation that is there. And if the organization that you're in is one that is designed to maximize revenue and maximize profit, that's the environment you're in. And you can decide that you want to assist in that. And that very well may mean situations in which care is compromised because that's not your North Star, your purpose, your mission. That's not the organization's North Star, though it may be yours. It's that mismatch that gets us in trouble, right? The one you chose to join. On the other hand, if you join an organization that is different and they're out there now, there's various primary care groups that that are there that are focused on being able to raise the quality and lower the cost, provide added convenience, and have a different model of getting there. And those organizations need physician leadership. They are available, they are around, and the voices of people able to not complain, but to solve the problem are there. That's how I got seen in my organization, that ability to make things happen that are better. And it's where, why I wrote Uncaring, because it is the bookend to Mistreated. I think the culture and the system need to change together. I believe that 
If you're going to be able to take a payment called capitation, it's a technical term, to care for a population of individuals, it starts to change your thinking. Number one, you start to ask, how do I restructure? How do we have better collaboration and cooperation across physicians? You start to come up with ideas as we did in the Permanent Medical Group, where if a patient's seeing a primary care physician and this physician believes that he or she needs a consult with a specialist, rather than sending a piece of paper or telling the patient to call, we used video to bring the specialist into the room and 40% of the time we solved the problem there and then. Now think about that. In a fee-for-service world, you never would do that. It's dumb to do that. You can't bill for it. You can't do a procedure. You can't do a test. But in a capitated world, providing immediate care with immediate treatment becomes the right way and the cost happens to be dramatically lower. But you wouldn't do that. You start to emphasize prevention across the United States today. Hypertension is controlled 55% of the time. We control it 90%. The number one cause of strokes and heart attack and kidney failure. Why? Because it aligns with that model. And now the culture across most of the United States, the culture is intervention over prevention. Here, prevention becomes equally important. In fact, in some ways, better because then you don't need the intervention to sit in play. You start to think about all of the pieces differently, you start to value primary care more because you recognize that what they do can diminish the need for medical care, not by in any way rationing it, but by leading to better quality outcomes. You start to embrace technology like telemedicine and secure email. Rather than seeing it as an added job to do, you recognize how much better it is for the patient and for being able to give care quickly. Each of those pieces start to happen and the medical and the physician culture moves as the system moves and the system moves as the physician moves. And that has to have combined leadership, physicians with administrators, not one over the other, but both moving together because now the administrators understand they can't make the changes without physician leadership. Because as you know, doctors aren't going to follow an administrator. They're going to follow a peer a colleague that they respect, who is able to provide great care. And as you noted earlier, the physician leader understands that he or she needs some expertise around capital, around finance, around other ways that the regulating bodies need to be addressed. That's not a doctor's role. The doctor's role is to figure out how do I provide higher quality, more efficiently, more quickly at lower cost. And I believe it can be done. You know, in Kaiser Permanente, we went from being middle of the pack in quality to being number one on the NCQA. We moved from being in the lower portion around service to being above everyone else in the community, J.D. Power and Associates. And we did that at a cost that was about 20% lower. And it happened because you start to take out the inefficiencies. You know, the 30% of the things that the Mayo Clinic has shown add no value that doctors continue to do. You stop doing it because the culture no longer drives up volume. I'm just a big believer that these two forces need to move together. And I'm optimistic, actually, they will in the post-coronavirus era, as you mentioned. Right. And follow the money. So I imagine that if you're listening right now, and we've just described your employer as one of the number-driven, profit-driven 
especially if you happen to be a, a distant outpost of a national company that is present in 26 states and all these different layers of your bureaucracy. What we're going to tell you right now is that the market will move to capitation. We're in the, in the dying days of fee for service. And in those companies that are run by a profit motive, by the way, if you have venture capital backing or private equity backing, you're being run on a for profit motive. For those companies, as we swing towards capitation, they will run the fee for service gerbil wheel as fast as possible in the days that are dying. So your financial pressures upon you are going to get worse over time. You might want to take a peek around and, and examine the quality of your life at work and how you think things are going. Because if you feel pressured by money right now, it's going to get worse as time goes forward. So real quick, uh, and obviously we have much more to talk about in future episodes. Let me ask you this real quick for the brave souls who step up and say, put me in coach. I want to be a leader, right? I want to be head of the department. I want to be chief of staff. I want to, I want to take a leadership role on from your experience, especially experience of cruising up through a corporate organizational structure. What's just one piece of advice that you learned along the way? You didn't know you were going to need to know this when you started out, but you sure as heck know it now. What would be one piece of advice that you would give a physician in a leadership position? I can't give you one. Yeah, I know you can't, but just pick one for today. We'll come back to it. Let me just give you a, give uh, people who are watching and listening the following. What leaders do is they do three things. They set a strategy. They align people around it. And they motivate them to move forward. That strategic thinking without action is powerless and action without thinking is aimless. And so it's that ability to do all three. You need to have a vision for what's going to happen. The world doesn't care about Dr. Burnout if we don't address the needs that they have around affordability, around access, around technology that makes their lives more convenient unless we can solve those issues. So we need a strategy that's going to do that. Simply telling people doctors are unhappy, moral injury. Uh, it's all true. The systemic things are all broken, but no one's going to care. We don't yet understand that as doctors until we start to solve that problem. So what's their strategy? Having thought about that, how are you going to align people there? You can have the greatest strategy, but if you want to be a leader of a department, of a medical staff, how are you going to bring everyone together? And then how are you going to motivate them to move forward. Again, topics you cover in your seminars all the time, ones that I speak about all the time that I teach at Stanford. But how do you do those three things? Because all three are essential. Do two out of three. It's, just, it's not going to work. You've got to do all three. Create the vision, align people around it, and motivate them to move forward. I was waiting for you to say the V word. I always look for the difference between running away from and running towards, right? Because as physicians, we're wired to see danger all around. So we're wired to see the symptom to uh, wonder about things like differential diagnosis is an exercise in paranoia. So basically, if we can build a vision that pulls people forward, a vision of a future that people want to participate in, then craft the strategy around that vision. The vision can do some of the heavy lifting and pull people forward. Well, I consider this to be opening salvo in a series of conversations, either on my podcast or yours, because we have a whole bunch more to talk about. But for today, let's say thank you very much to Dr. Robert Pearl, MD, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. The book Uncaring, 
What was all the deals on the pre-order? Give us that special again. Sure, on caring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, not-for-profit, all the money going to do uh, Doctors Without Borders, and they get the signed book plate, they get the reading guide, they get the discussion guide, and they'll get a chance to read the introductory chapter before anyone else. I can't wait. Thank you so much, Dyke. This has been a, a lot of fun. I hope the watchers and the listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. Right on. And I'm going to throw in some Batman pow, kaboom, <laughs> smash for all of that, too. Right on. Have a great rest of your day. Be safe. Everybody, the Physicians on Purpose podcast, subscribe where you get your podcast. And we're at the home of the Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington, Dyke Drummond. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe and pray that there's no last coronavirus wave. See you next time.